are good. You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords. You are the God of heaven, and your steadfast love endures forever. We gather this morning to declare that. We gather to hear from you, from your word, to hear from this psalm, to learn what it means to give praise to you, to sing to you, to thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, open our eyes this morning to see your glory, to see your wonders, and to know deep in our hearts who you are and what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it is that time of the year again. NFL training camp is upon us, and the Packers are, are hard at it, along with uh, 31 other teams trying to, trying to get ready for the season. There's a lot, a lot of work that goes into it, right? A lot of study. Just, they're not just out there on the field running around, right? They're in the film room studying. It's about repetition. It's about muscle memory. It's about drilling these things into their head so that when they get out there on the field, they don't have to think about it. They don't have to stop and say, now what was that play again? It's just drilled into their mind so that it becomes second nature. And if you listen to interviews from rookie players, one of the things that you'll hear over and over them say is, talk about the game starting to slow down, right? When they get out there first, things are just crazy. It's just all these things running through their head. But the, when, they, when they say the game starts to slow down, that means that things start to come together. All that work that they put into it starts to pay off. Now, this isn't completely analogous to the Christian life, but I think there's some overlap and there's something instructive about that process. I think there's a lot of things in our lives that require repetition and frequency. Another great example is Earlier this spring, I was talking to one of our college students who's in the music program at UWO, and when you talk to people who are in, in, like really into music, they don't just learn an instrument when they're a kid and then like play it in high school and then go to college and, and play every once in a while, and then just like, oh, I got this. I don't need to practice anymore, right? That's not how it works. They don't just go perform at concerts based on their prior knowledge. They put in hours and hours and hours of of work every day and every week, and it's grueling. And when when he was telling me about it, I was just like, that's crazy. I can't imagine practicing an instrument that many hours a day. So let's think about how this relates to us as we live the Christian life. Think about something that we do often, right? As Christians, we read our Bibles Why is it important that we take time to spend time with God reading his word? Maybe you're going through a Bible reading plan right now. Is it because you don't have anything else on your to-do list and you're just bored, so you just say, oh, I'll just go spend an hour a day reading the Bible? Probably not. Is it because that when you watch Jeopardy, you can answer all of the Bible trivia questions and say, oh, I'm, I'm as smart as that person? Probably not. Right? Well, let's look at it for a moment from another perspective. Not from the perspective of individual spiritual discipline like Bible reading, but from a corporate perspective. Why do we gather week after week? Why do we come here over and over and over to worship God? Again, is it because we have nothing else to do with our time? Right? No. We have, summer is upon us. We're all really busy. We're not like, hey, let's go to church because we're bored. Is it so that we can look better than our neighbors? 
say, oh yeah, I'm good because I went to church. I think the days of of moral one-upsmanship in our culture are long gone, right? We're not coming here because we need to feel better about ourselves or think we're better than our neighbors. So why are we here? It's not because we're trying to get better at something like the NFL football player or the concert pianist. There's something more fundamental at stake of why we gather. It's not because we need to work on an outward skill. It's because of something inward that is wrong with us. And it has to do with our memories. And I'm not talking about just a problem with our brains. For most of us, our biggest challenge in the Christian life is not that we don't understand what we believe. It's not that we can't go and explain the ABCs of the gospel to someone. It's not that we can't tell them what it means to trust in Jesus and become a Christian. For most of us, it's a heart issue. It's that we forget so easily what it's really all about. And therefore, we need to be reminded over and over and over of who God is and what he has done to redeem us. One of the best and most frequent and most consistent ways that we can do that and be reminded of that is in corporate worship. We don't come here just because we need to see people and we need to fill the pews. We come here week after week because our hearts need to be reminded of the gospel. As we retell the story of the gospel to each other and to the watching world, we tell the story of God's people. We tell the history of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. It's his story of redemption that we get the privilege to tell. And we've been spending this summer looking at the Psalms. We've been asking, how do the Psalms tell this story of God's people? Through creation, through fall, through redemption, through consummation. How, as we walk through these Psalms in these four areas, how do we retell the gospel story week after week? Previously, we've looked at eight Psalms already this summer. Most of them have been personal psalms, personal praises, or personal psalms of lament. Uh, Psalm 33 is the only one that's probably been the most similar to what we're going to see here in Psalm 136. That was a corporate psalm, and that had a lot of uh, things that it was telling us to do. But the others, the other psalms we've looked at, have been more of the indicative. That means that it, it says what is. It's just saying this is, this is who God is, and just a, a true statements about God and about the world. But our psalm today uh, is filled with imperatives. It's commanding us to do something. And I think we have this tendency to shy away from saying, oh, we have to do something in the Christian life. There's a fear of, of works-based salvation. And so we say, I don't want to like, tell people they have to do something. But the Bible is full of imperatives. And we don't need to hesitate to talk about these imperatives and what we're told to do. But we do need to order the indicative and the imperative correctly. Okay? The what must always come before the why. What is true about God? Who is he? What has he done for us? In Psalm 136, the what is, is also the who. who. Who is he? Who is God? What has he done for us? And that leads us to the main question that is before us this morning. 
Why should we praise him? Okay, it's the title of the message. If you're taking notes, there's a, there's a spot on the, the back side of the worship guide. Why should we praise our God? There are five reasons. If you're taking notes again, kind of the big idea from Psalm 136 is that God has redeemed his people so that we may worship him and tell his story of redemption to the world. God has redeemed his people so that we may worship him and tell his story of redemption to the world. So we're going to look at five reasons why we should praise our God. The first one is we should praise him for who he is. We see that in verses 1 to 3. This is broken up pretty nicely in the ESV, the stanzas there, verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 9, verses 10 to 16, 17 to 22, and then 23 uh, to 25. 26 is is kind of on its own, but we're going to put that with uh, 23 to 25. So we're just going to walk right through these, these stanzas. The first one, verses 1 to 3, we should praise him for who he is. We are told to give thanks to the Lord. Again, this is a command. Give thanks or praise the Lord. And then we see this important word here, for. For he is good. Or the word for can also mean because. Two reasons that are given to praise the Lord. First is that he is good. This goodness here is talking about the nature and character of God. This is talking about a moral good as opposed to moral evil. It's the opposite of evil. So it's not based on what God has done, which is often how we use the word, right? We talk about if you say somebody's a good person, you're saying that because of the the things that they do, right? The way maybe they compare with other people based on the things they do. Or if you say a company has a good reputation, well, it's not good in and of itself. It has a good reputation because the way they conduct their business and the way they do things. But if we look at the Psalms, we're reminded of the reality of the human condition. In Psalm 14, verse 3, we read, talking about the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. The psalmist says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So if we're even just talking about doing good deeds, the psalmist here says, there's none who even does good. We're not good in and of ourselves, and we don't even do good. And Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 3 as he talks about the condition of fallen humanity. There is none who does good. Another example of how we use this word, we say, God is good all the time, right? And all the time, God is good, right? But what usually prompts us to say that? We're usually not thinking about God's nature and his character, right? We're saying, oh, God did something really good for me. So I'm going to say God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. That's not a bad response. We should praise him for the good things he does for us. But I think we need to look at it from the other perspective, from the perspective of what the psalmist is saying here, that God is good meaning his nature and his character. He can do no wrong. And the fact that he, in his perfect goodness, has chosen to reveal himself to us and to draw near to us in our sin and our badness, this is a cause for praise and thanksgiving. 
So that's the first reason that we should give thanks or praise the Lord. The second reason is a pretty important one as well. For his steadfast love endures forever. Is that in your head yet after saying it 26 times? The repetition in this psalm is very important. It's the only psalm like it where we have that repetition over and over and over. And if you look at this idea of steadfast love, if you read the psalms and you don't come away saying, man, the psalms talk a lot about God's steadfast love, then you're missing something. (laughs) It's all over the psalms. It's the word hesed, which James talked about last week in Psalm 51. David's prayer, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David is asking God to act, to do something, to have mercy on him, based on who God is, based on his steadfast love. It's a divine attribute of God. It's it's who he is. Steadfast love is a part of his very nature and his character. And his steadfast love, we are told, it endures forever or it's everlasting. And there's one more aspect of of who he is. Uh, This is not talking about his character. It's not talking about his, his goodness or his steadfast love. But it's talking about his supremacy. It's talking about who he is in comparison to, to anything else. We see this three times in the first three verses. Give thanks to the Lord, Yahweh, which is God's divine name, his covenant name, which he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. The God of Israel, he's the God who, who keeps his covenant and is full of steadfast love. Then verse 2, he's called the God of gods. In verse 3, the Lord of lords. It means that he is supreme over all other ideas of God. Obviously, it's lowercase gods there, whether it's idols or gods that people have created in their minds. He is the God of gods, and he is the Lord of lords. We see this language pictured in the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus returning on a white horse. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Do you remember what it is? King of kings and Lord of lords. It's saying that he is supreme. He will return in majesty, displaying his supremacy over all of the world. The supremacy that alone will demand that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The psalmist here is is talking about that same idea of God's greatness and his grandeur, his supremacy over all other things. So the supreme motivation for praise, the answering the why question in Psalm 136 and Revelation 19 and in all of our lives is first and foremost based on who God is. He is good and he is abounding in steadfast love. It's hard to come up with a a comparable example to this because every human relationship in which we experience love and adoration is always skewed by sin. Whether it's in marriage or in parenting or in our our best relationships that we have. In our family right now, there's kind of this uh, fun stage going on. Ryle, our youngest, uh, just like can't stop 
Like he can't get over Dada. Like every time I walk in, he just always wants to be by me. If he sees me, he wants to come to me. And it's adorable and I love it. (laughs) But I realize that it's also not permanent. (laughs) There's going to be a day when, eh, yeah, Dada, right? I'm not going to be his favorite or I'm going to sin against him and I'm going to hurt him. And that picture of, of him and his, his youthfulness coming to me might look a little different. But it's not this way with our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to meditate on the reality of what should motivate our praise and our worship of God. Is it first and foremost based on who he is? That he is always good And that he is always unchanging. That his steadfast love endures forever. Do we stand in awe of that and say that he is good all the time? Can we say that and speak of his nature apart from what he has done for us? But I also want to be careful here. I'm not suggesting that we pit who he is against what he has done for us. This isn't an either-or type of thing. It's not, well, choose one, right? You only get one. We don't pit his mighty works of creation and redemption against his nature. The psalmist doesn't do that here in Psalm 136. It's a both and. We praise him for who he is and we praise him for what he has done. But we always have to remember that his works, the things he has done, are grounded in who he is. It has to be that way. And we're going to see that throughout this psalm, the rest of this psalm, in four pictures of what God has done for us. So we've established who God is, right? He's good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Now we're going to look at what he's done for us. Now we're going to praise him in the rest of these 23 verses for what he has done for us. The first area we see is that we should praise him for his work of creation. This is in that Second stanza in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 describes it perfectly here. To him who alone does great wonders. It's a pretty great way to talk about God and his creative work. He alone does great wonders. We spent three weeks earlier looking at God's work of creation. We see this throughout the Psalms. This language, it's, it's here in these verses. This language of sun and moon and stars and mountains and seas and and creating us, Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Psalm 33 were the other Psalms we looked at. Again, this language is everywhere in the Psalms. And after we looked at creation, we looked at the fall. We spent three weeks prior uh, looking at these Psalms of lament. We saw why the world is in the condition that it's in, and we saw as God's people how we ought to seek him, how we ought to cry out to God in light of the fallen world that we live in. We saw language like why or how long, O Lord, and that we saw that it's right and it's okay as God's people to use that type of language, to basically say, God, where are you? God, what's going on around us in this world? And praise God that the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't leave us in that sinful fallen condition. He doesn't leave us just asking those questions and not having them answered. As we saw with David's prayer last week in Psalm 51, God hears us when we confess our sins. He restores us, he redeems us, and he transforms us. 
That was David's individual experience of God's mercy and his steadfast love. But again, we don't just come to these things individually. That's why I love Psalm 136. Psalm 136 corporately celebrates the redemption of God's people. We don't just come to church and sing songs saying, Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Though he has, right? And we should celebrate and praise him for that. But we come corporately together to celebrate and to say, Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, for saving your people, for saving and gathering your church, which we are all individually a part of. And that's what we're going to see in this next section of Psalm 136 in verses 10 through 16. We should praise him for his work of redemption. The psalmist here points back to the great salvation that God worked for his people in the Exodus as he delivered them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. But it wasn't just enough, if you know the story, the people being released out of Egypt from from underneath the, the slavery to Pharaoh. It wasn't just enough for Pharaoh to let the people go. It wasn't enough to say, okay, taking off your chains, you can go. That was just the beginning of what was about to take place. That was the beginning of a bigger story, a bigger picture of God's redemptive work. After they leave Egypt, God leads them through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They end up trapped up against the Red Sea, and they're complaining to Moses. They're saying, we were better off slaves in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? We just want to go back to where we were. But Moses said to them, you will see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. That is what Moses reminded them of. Then the Lord divided the Red Sea. He overthrew the superpowered army of Egypt with their chariots and their horsemen. And the reminder in that story for God's people throughout history is that we worship a God who has not only delivered us from slavery, but he continues to lead us. And he has overthrown sin and death and Satan. Remember Moses' plea to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may what? Worship me. If you look at the front cover of your worship guide here, I have a quote from Michael Goheen from the book Light to the Nations. He's talking here about how God gathered the people of Israel to himself and how he delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Speaking of that redemption that God worked, he said the purpose of redemption is to create a worshiping people. God's continuing presence with the people of Israel called them to the ongoing worship of their divine king. Worship is central to the identity of God's people. The people of God celebrate God's presence among them as a worshiping community. Brothers and sisters, this is true for us today. It's as true for us here as it was for the people of Israel thousands of years ago. And worship is central to our identity as we celebrate God's presence among us as a worshiping community who has been redeemed by his mighty hand. For us, our redemption is not a literal deliverance from slavery in a foreign land. 
It's not crossing a literal sea as God parts the waters. But it is a deliverance from bondage to sin and death. And to a slave master that is more ruthless than any earthly king. And it is a crossing not of great waters, but it is a crossing over from death into life. That is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross to purchase our redemption. We've asked several times this summer, how do the Psalms point to Jesus? Here you go, right? This great picture of of creation and redemption as we see in this psalm points us forward to Christ, points us forward to the need for an ultimate deliverer. The Exodus was was a dress rehearsal for the work that Christ would do on the cross. It was a picture of God's mighty work of redemption that he would work to save us from our sin. Just like the Israelites in the Exodus, we don't just look back to the cross. We don't just look back to our past deliverance from bondage to sin and death and the devil. But we look to the present and to the future at God's ongoing protection and provision. We see that pictured here in our next section, verses 17 to 22. And we see that we should praise God for his protection and provision. It's pictured here with the conquest of the land. Just as the exodus from Egypt is a spiritual picture and not physical for the church, so here is this picture of going in and settling the land. We don't physically go as the church and conquer foreign lands and foreign kings. That's not what we're called to do. And any ideas of that throughout church history have been wrong. This is made very clear by the author of Hebrews. And he goes all the way back. Back to Abraham, back to the patriarchs. Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of Abraham and the patriarchs. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We're going to be talking about this a lot at our next Summer Conversation, the book Evangelism as Exiles. What does it mean to live on mission? What does it mean to be strangers and exiles in our own land? What does it mean to long for a better country, to long for a heavenly country? I think it's an opportunity. We look at this psalm and and we look the the conquest of the land and, and settling in the land. That wasn't the ultimate goal for the people of Israel. It was always pointing forward. And the author of Hebrews tells us that even before all of this happened, way back to Abraham, it was always about desiring a better country. So as we live here now, thousands of years later, America is not our better country. Or wherever we are from or might end up, it's not our better country. We are longing 
for a heavenly home and a heavenly country. And while we are on this journey, we praise God, we praise him for his saving and sustaining grace, which is what we see in the last section, verses 23 to 26. I love verses 23 to 25 because while it certainly reflects the actual physical experience of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, just like the exodus and the conquest of the land, it represents more of a universal reality of what God has done for his people from Genesis to Revelation. And these realities are seen in the three main verbs in each verse here. Remembered, verse 23, it says, He who remembered us in our low estate. Verse 24, rescued. He rescued us from our foes. And verse 25, gives. He who gives food to all flesh. Just going to walk through these three. Remembered, rescued, gives. This word remembered is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God remembering his covenant promises to his people. Genesis chapter 9, God's covenant with Noah. When God sees the rainbow, he will remember his covenant that he made with Noah. He will remember his promises and he will not destroy the earth with the flood again. Psalm 105 ties together God's remembering with his promise of the land. I think this is really interesting, this idea of of a better country as we relate it to Hebrews chapter 11. Psalm 105 verses 8 to 11 says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So that promise for a thousand generations, it has to point beyond the actual physical land. It's an eternal dwelling place. And God remembers his covenant faithfulness. He remembers the promises that he has made to his people. And we can look back to those promises and we can rest in the hope that we have of the promises that God has made to us. So remembered. Second thing is rescued. This word rescued here can also be translated as redeemed. Uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses uh, the same word for that's redeemed that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, when he says that we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. So God rescued us from our foes. That, that word for him rescuing is also the same word that we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. This idea of being rescued for us doesn't mean that God has promised freedom from pain and hardship and suffering in life. Jesus didn't hang on the cross and shed his precious blood so that we could have our best life now. He rescued us from sin and death and the devil that we might worship him, that we might trust him, and that we might tell of his goodness and his steadfast love to the world around us. To the world that, try as it may, cannot deny his common grace in their lives cannot deny that he is good and he is the one who sustains all things. That he is the one who gives food 
to all flesh. That's what verse 25 says. The fact that anyone is alive today is because of God's common grace. It's because he continues to give food and not famine and not drought. The fact that any of us have food on our tables any day is because of God's grace. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who keeps us. So I love how this psalm starts off, it starts off huge, right? Talking about creation, which applies to everybody. And then it narrows down, talking about what God has done specifically to redeem the people of Israel and bring them into the, the promised land. But then it ends getting, getting huge again, right? Talking about God's grace, God's provision for all of mankind, that all people should turn to him. All people should look to him and give him thanks and praise. And he calls us, his people, he calls his church to be the heralds of this saving grace as we declare his praises among the nation. Living Stone Church, our friends who are visiting and returning home after EAA and and travels. May we live out this calling to be a light to the nations as we praise our God for who he is and how he has redeemed us by the precious blood of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, there are so many things that we can think of when we think about who you are and what you have done for us. God, we could read the Bible from cover to cover. Even all the things that are revealed in there. There's, there's more. There's more to praise you for. There's more to understand. There's more to give thanks for. God, we can never say enough. We can never do enough. We can never give you enough thanks or praise for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. But God, may our hearts be reminded of your goodness, of your steadfast love, of who you are, of your nature. And based upon that, may we thank you and praise you. And may we then turn and and thank you and and praise you for, for the things you have done for us and continue to do for us. And God, may we declare your praises to the world around us, both here as we gather together week after week and out there as we go out to live our lives as ambassadors for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can stand as we sing our last song, number 57, In Christ Alone.